I have a question for you. I'm going to ask a few questions this morning. Some of them I, can I say, expect you to answer out loud and help me out with. Um, This one maybe less so. But do you ever feel lost when it comes to praying? Maybe you feel like you just don't have the right words. You don't know know what would make sense to pray in a certain situation or at a certain time. Or, Or maybe you feel like, when you consider what prayer is, talking to a God that we've just said is, is holy, that is other, that is so much greater and more than us, when we think that, we're like, well, who am I to come and talk to this God? We just think, well, I'm not, I'm not good enough. Maybe somebody has to do it for me. Or maybe if you've, you've kind of grown up in or around the church, you know you've been told that you should read your Bible, pray every day. And you know you should do that, but for whatever reason, for this reason or that, it it just doesn't happen. It's not a part of your regular rhythms, or you just uh, don't make the time, or don't have the time, or whatever it might be. Well, for these couple reasons and more, we are jumping into a series looking at the Psalms of the Bible. For centuries, Christians have, have learned to pray by reading this book. And the Hebrews or the Jewish people, they've had a centuries longer head start on us as Christians uh, when it comes to prayer and worship as they've had this, this collection of hymns and prayers that has, has given them uh, this, uh, this language to bring to God. And so if you have a Bible, if you uh, take your Bible and you held it vertically like this, if you need a Bible, I forgot again, uh, there are some in the middle of the room, by all means come grab one. If you don't have one at home, take that as our gift to you. But if you, if you take your Bible, hold it by the seam and just kind of open your hand and let it flop, uh, it didn't right there, but uh, not if it's on a phone, Trevor, sorry. I just, some Guys, you just got to really spell things out for him. If you take a paper Bible that has, you know papers in it, and you let it flop open, chances are it will open up to the Psalms. It's right in the middle of the book. This is the collection of works that Abraham Lincoln confided in one of his friends and said, listen, these are the best. I can find something in them for every single day of the year. Uh, Martin Luther called the Psalms the Bible in miniature. If you were a book publisher and you thought, well, I'm going to publish this book called the Psalms. I'll take these 150 chapters, put them together. And, and you're considering, you know, cover art and, and, and trailers and all those things that you need for books now too, movie trailers and, and a dust jacket. There's an, there's an endless number of quotes and stuff you could pull out of the Psalms to, to promote your book as a publisher. This book, the Psalms, contain more chapter than any other book in the Bible. It has both the longest and the shortest chapter in the Bible. It's quoted more often in the New Testament than any other book. It's arguably the most popular book in the Old Testament, if not the whole Bible. The Psalms are where we find the familiar comforting words, The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And so for the next weeks, we're going to take a bit of a, a snapshot walk through the Psalms. We're going to look at the different types or categories of psalms that we find in there and, and dig into what they meant then and, and what they mean for us today and, and how we can learn to pray from them. And if we read the psalms, one of the, the, the greatest things about the psalms, I think, in, in my opinion, is we're going to see the gut-level honesty of the writers. They, the, the, the psalmists give us permission to say to God, how can this happen? How can you do this to me? 
We'll see brutal honesty as, as, as the psalmist expressed all sorts of human experiences and emotions, so many of which we can identify with. And so as we study these words, I trust and it's, it's my prayer and our prayer that we would, we would use them to fuel our prayer lives. That they would teach us to pray as well. Both individually or as families and, and as a church. And we'll see that we can come to God with our hopes, with our praise, of course, but also with our fears and even with our anger. And God hears those prayers and He wants us to draw close to Him. One little challenge allow me to issue you before we dive into the series. As I mentioned, there are 150 psalms. There are on average about 30 days in a month. So a little back of the napkin math says you can read, if you read five psalms in a day, you could get through the whole book in a month. And it would only take you probably two to maybe 10 minutes, a little bit longer when you hit Psalm 119, the big long one. It would only take you a few minutes a day to get through this book. So if you're wondering, uh, again, I know I should read the Bible. I don't know where to start. Start there. Read five Psalms a day. And as a, a bit of an aside that's connected, there's 31 Proverbs, chapters in Proverbs as well. So you, you, know, you put together five Psalms and one Proverbs, and there's your Bible reading plan for every day forever. Let me read our text this morning, Psalm 1, and see if it sounds familiar. If you've been around uh, Trinity for the last little while, uh, we've come out of a series called Gospel Fluency, which we, we tried to learn how to see Jesus in the text everywhere to be able to become more fluent in the language of Jesus. Uh, and just before that, we came out of a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which this is a huge tip to the next question I'm going to ask after we read the text, which started with the Beatitudes, which of course you remember how those started, right? Okay, let me, let me read Psalm 1, 1. Blessed is the man, or blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers." The wicked or the ungodly are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Anything in those verses sound familiar? The hint was the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. Blessed are the... Whatever is how Jesus starts. Right? Jesus pulls the same language as he teaches. This psalm, Psalm 1, is intended, it was written to introduce to us the whole book of Psalms, or the whole Psalter, you could call it, and guide us through the rest. Basically, everything we have here is, is, is fleshed out and opened up in the other 149 psalms. As well, when we come to our Bible, whenever we come to our Bible, we need to understand what kind of literature we're reading. And we know this. We know that we read poetry different than a newspaper. We read a comic book different than we read a biography. And so when we come to this text, the Psalms is one of five books in our Old Testaments that are called the writings or wisdom literature. It's a, it's a category. The others, just for interest's sake, are Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And all five of these books are grouped right together in the middle of the Bible. Now, as wisdom literature, much of the Psalms are poetry. 
And so they should be read as such. There's, there's a lot going on in how the language is laid out and set up. And, and a bit of an interesting side note, sort of side note, about Psalm 1. The first word starts with uh, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. The last word, Per, starts with the last letter of the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew alphabet. And so even just in this, this linguistic tool that the Psalter used says, listen, here's the A to Z of everything. It's, it's brilliant. So we, we come to poetry, we come to Hebrew poetry different than we come to prophetic writings, different than we come to the Gospels that are, that are narrative or to the letters of Paul. The wisdom literature, they're, they're much, as I said, they're, they're poetry. They don't tell us anything new. They don't tell us new or great stories, but they, they definitely point us back to stories. They don't teach us any new laws, but yet they are instructions as well. Psalm 1 is a is wisdom psalm. So it's, it's wisdom literature. And then among the psalms, there are several different categories of psalms. And this is one of the wisdom psalms. And we hear ideas from here also echoed in Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. The wisdom that comes out of this, there's a contrast exposed as maybe you, you gathered as we read the six verses that, that points us back. It talks about life and death and reminds us of Deuteronomy 30 as, as God spoke through Moses. He says, I've, I've set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying Him and holding fast to Him. For that means life to you and length of days. A lot of the ideas in Psalm chapter 1 we actually also find in Joshua 1 verse 8, which is another often memorized verse, where we read there, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall be successful. Also, as we've mentioned, Psalm 1 is a beatitude. It's, a, it's, it's describing for us how to be happy or blessed or for fulfilled, fortunate, or privileged. And as a beatitude kind of wisdom psalm, it's also linked with several others. Psalm 32 and 41 and 112 and 119 and 128. I've actually, the challenge I issued you of the reading five psalms a day, I'm, I'm about two-thirds of the way through the book myself, so I you know, want to, don't want to tell you to do something that I'm not willing to do. And one of the, one of the brilliant things I've noticed, even this past week, is in, in seven days, as I've been thinking about Psalm 1 and speaking on it, as I read you know, 30 books later, it's like, oh, there's Psalm 1 again in Psalm 30. Oh, there's Psalm 1 again somewhere in the 70s. There's Psalm 1 again in the 100s. Like it's, it's, it's all linked and tied together. These beatitude psalms that teach us what, what blessing is. They teach us that this, this state of blessing, this state of true happiness is, is marked by a sense of, of well-being and contentment and satisfaction. And I think if we really are honest with ourselves, this is what we want. This is the, the pursuit of, of everyone's life, is to find happiness, contentment, satisfaction, and, and meaning. And so Psalm 1 points us in that direction. It points us to true and lasting happiness by presenting to us a series of contrasts between two kinds of people. The language is the the righteous and the wicked, those who, who follow God and those who don't follow God. And so the goal in this psalm and the other wisdom psalms is to see this contrast, this, this contrast of, of blessing versus emptiness, fulfillment versus searching, and ultimately to draw us to God. 
So let's dig into this first psalm. And as we do, we'll ask three questions that hopefully will, this will shape our discussion today and, and give us some, some wisdom through this. The first question is, who is this blessed one that the psalm talks about? The second is, how are they blessed? And finally, why are they blessed? Because it sounds pretty good. To be truly happy, that sounds like something we want to strive for. So we need to find out what this tells us on how to get there. First, who is the blessed one? If we look at the first two verses, Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2, a couple of things jump out. They, they teach us of the kind of person God is looking for to, to bless. And the first piece is, we notice that the blessed one doesn't sin. We see what this person doesn't do in verse 1. Blessed is the man, or blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. I think it's really interesting here, if we go back to the original language, this verse literally reads, Happy are those who don't walk by the advice of the wicked, who don't stand on the path of sinners, and don't sit in the company of scoffers. Do you notice a bit of a progression there? Walk, then sort of slow down and stand, and then get comfortable and have a seat. It's something of a, of a spiral, a, down, a downward spiral that one settles into, into sin by stages. First, you know, we're influenced by others as we, we sort of walk by and kind of take a glimpse. Then we identify with that sin and we sort of slow down and we stand and we kind of wrestle with it a little bit ourselves. And then finally, we are also spreading sin by joining and sitting with the scoffers. What it's kind of saying here, I think, is that if we start to toy with the idea of sin, it always leads from bad to worse. As one writer says, first, you'll be influenced. You'll start by listening to what the, the ungodly or the wicked say. You'll, you'll maybe laugh at sin on TV or in movies. You'll admire a celebrity who's far from God. You'll listen to music that makes sin sound appealing. And as you listen to sinners, you want to be like them. You actually meditate on the sin, even though you may not call it that, and you begin to walk in the counsel of the wicked. Next, you start to identify with sinners. You, you stop and you take your stand with them. The word way in this verse refers to a lifestyle, works to, uh, refers to a path you follow through life. And all of a sudden, their sinful lifestyle becomes your lifestyle. Their attitude becomes your attitude, and, and their habits become your habits. And the final step here is one step further. You sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, he says, scoffers are, are funny people. They make you laugh as you turn away from God. Mockers are missionaries of wickedness. They tell jokes as they call good evil and call evil good. They'll want to make you feel stupid for trying to follow God. And if you listen to them long enough, you will walk in their counsel, you will take your stand with them, and you will become like them. Now, I think if we're honest, if we read this verse, as we read this verse, we're, we're left with a bit of a problem we can't ignore. If we look back at our lives, if we even look back at the last few days, perhaps, we see that, that we have all too often listened to counsel that was opposed to God. We've maybe even stood with sinners and perhaps even sat down and, and made fun of someone who was trying to obey God. I know that if I look back on my life at various stages, I've, I've done all three. And I can see, as, as if I am honest with myself and look back, I can see this progression. It doesn't take long, depending on what I'm listening to in the car as I drive, to start thinking, you know what? That latest hit song, whatever it is, that lifestyle they're talking about, that, that sounds pretty good. 
You know, if I, if I watch enough uh, different movies, I think to myself, you know what? I think I could drive a really fast car with Dwayne Johnson and Vin Diesel. And when Fast and the Furious 9 comes out, that, that street racing lifestyle, that seems pretty good. Maybe I should look into that. To put it another way, we have all sinned. We've all been at at least one of these stages, if not two or three. We've all acted out of unbelief towards God. And the problem is, again, the grammar in this first verse suggests that obedience is required. It's effectively saying, blessed is the one that has never sinned. The godly are never to be involved in any of these things. And so if this blessing and happiness and fulfillment of Psalm 1 is is for those who are and those who have always been separate from sin, who has a chance at this? The hint, of course, is remember our last series that we said that so much of the Old Testament is written to point us to who? Jesus. In the 4th century, Augustine wrote that this verse is to be understood of our Lord Jesus Christ. From Adam on, no one else has lived up to the standard of Psalm 1 verse 1. And so now that Jesus has come and we can look back, we can see that he is the only one whose sinless life and, and delight in God's word have earned him God's blessing. He's the one truly, supremely happy man. And we'll read about that further in Psalm 45. Jesus is the blessed man. And so where does that leave us? Good for Jesus, but the good news is, of course, the gospel is that all the blessings of Psalm 1 are ours through our obedience in Jesus. If we've been joined together with Jesus by trusting in the work of his death and resurrection, if, if we're in Christ, our life is wrapped up in his, and, and, and that blessing that comes from his work on the cross, that he took sin to the grave, and we get his righteousness in return. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's brilliant. God gives us Jesus' righteousness. His obedience is counted as ours. And since Jesus' righteous obedience is credited to us, then all the blessings attached to that here in Psalm 1 are ours as well. And not only that, but if if the Spirit of Christ is living in us, then Christ himself will help us to turn away from sin, to delight in the Word, and to meditate on his Word. So to live out Psalm 1, we need to become more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we read is the blessed one does not sin. But second, we see the blessed one loves God's Word. Look at verse 2. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. True happiness, this fulfillment, this blessing is found by constantly and intentionally focusing on the Word of God. And if we've said that, that it's all about Jesus and Psalm 1-1 is telling us about Jesus, we see this in His life too, don't we? As we read the Gospels, as we read His biographies, we read that even as a child, as, as, a, as a young boy, He amazed teachers in the temple by his, his knowledge and understanding and His love for God's Word. During his temptation in the wilderness at the start of the Gospels, remember, he was, he was challenged and confronted uh, three times. How did he respond to those temptations? Do you remember? What did, what did he do first off? What did we read? He quoted Scripture. It was right there in his heart. He knew how to, how to correct even the false quoting of Scripture that he heard. And throughout his ministry, he taught from the Bible. Right? He, he quoted the Psalms. He quoted the Old Testament. He showed how the Scriptures pointed to him. He taught from the Scriptures. 
And so this is true from those who follow Jesus as well. As we grow in our faith, the key piece in our journey is is delighting in the law of the Lord, as verse 2 says. And as we do that, both our hearts and our heads will be engaged. Now this word law there is the Hebrew word Torah, which often refers to the first five books of the Bible. It talks about kind of the law of Moses. But in this context, it refers to the scriptures as the whole. It doesn't just mean the rules. We delight in all the rules. That does not sound happy to me, to just love rules. Talk to my four and seven-year-olds. It's not a good life for them either to just, right? But here it's talking about delighting in the story of God, in all of the scriptures, maybe especially the Psalms. The blessed one finds unspeakable joy in God's word because, because they love God. And they want to learn how to please God. And we'll we'll only delight in God's law and His word if we delight in God Himself. Now, there are a couple of reasons that that people, myself included perhaps, uh, don't delight in the law of the Lord sometimes. And these sting a little bit, but we need to do some some hard work. And and if this is true of us, we can come to the Lord in prayer and, and deal with these things. First, honestly, sometimes we're just not humble enough to be taught. We think we've got it all figured out. No, my marriage is okay. My kids are they're okay. Uh, life seems good. What do I need God's instruction for? We'll just figure it out on ourselves and move forward by ourselves. Sometimes we assume that we already know God, or we sort of put together, you know, I feel in my heart that I can come to God this way, which sounds pretty prevalent in our current culture. One writer says this, If you imagine that you can know God just by looking inside yourself, you're like a person who looks down a well. The reflection you see is your own face, and you assume that God is like you. But God's ways are high above our ways. He dwells in unapproachable light. We can only know Him if He reveals Himself to us. And this is why we need the Bible. Some people don't love God's Word because they think they already know Him. God's blessing is for those who love His Word. And if we're in this series going to take the Psalms to teach us how to pray, we can pray for that. Because I'll be honest, there's some days in my life where I don't feel like sitting down and reading the Bible. For whatever reason, the distractions, the the sin in my life, I will say, has drawn me away. But we can pray, God, give me a a desire to to just dwell in your word. To just let it it soak through me and, and teach me and show me who you are. Let me delight in it. If your heart is engaged, then your head will be too. Look at how verse 2 finishes. On the law, he meditates day and night. This word meditate, we need to define because in our day, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Most of the time when we are talking about or when you hear in social media or see walking down the street, y'all come in here for some guided meditation or whatever else, it's talking about a, a clearing or an emptying of the mind. And this idea is rooted in several kind of new age Eastern philosophies and religion. But here, the word means to murmur or to mutter. This meditate in this verse has a sense of sort of talking to yourself or or speaking under your breath as you consider what you're reading. Some paint the picture of of this sort of meditating as like like a cow chewing on cud. Uh, some have said that you know the, the cows they'll, they'll eat something they'll they'll chew it up they'll swallow it then they'll bring it back up to chew on it again which is really gross but you'll never forget <laughs> chew on it again 
swallow it again, bring it out maybe a third time, chew on it again, swallow it again, so that they get every last bit of nutrients out of that meal that they've eaten. And that's what, that's what we're talking about here. We take a verse, we, we don't just empty our mind, but we fill our mind with God's word. And we take a concept and we let it rattle around in our heads for a while and say, well, what does that look like in the way, what does this verse mean in the way I parent or the way I'm a, a spouse or a friend or work or just generally live? All these things, how we come at it from as many different angles as we can. For me, one of the, the sort of practical examples of this, last week we were at a, a different church with some friends and, and we were singing a song and, and one of the lines in the song that, as with any good modern worship song, was repeated several times was, I am who you say I am. Right? The, the song is, who the sun sets free is free indeed. And, and we moved on, I am who you say I am. And, and in that moment, it just, that, that's the line that stuck. Okay, if, if I am who God says I am, who does God say I am? And so over the last week or so, I don't know how many times that same line has popped into my head. Who does God say I am? And what am I believing? Am I believing actually what God says I am or something else? And so I would suggest I've chewed that kind of fair bit this week. What does God say about me? One writer also says this, biblical meditation is a diligent search. Whereas religious cults teach people to empty their minds as a means, of med- a means of meditation, the Bible teaches us to fill our minds with God's Word. Meditation has a, a quiet heart and a directed mind, mulling over a word in our, heart, in our heart with a pursuit that springs from the inquisitive child's heart is meditation. So we can also pray for that inquisitive child's heart, can't we? One last thing without overwhelming us in original languages and grammars. This word, uh, meditate here, is an imperfect verb, which means it's an ongoing action. It doesn't stop. And so we are to continually be pondering God's word without ending, always having something rattling around in our heads. So as you see, Christian meditation is active. It's a wrestling. It's a mining. It's a digging. It's working out the text. So how can we do this? Just a couple really practical ways that maybe will be helpful to you, maybe not, but we'll, we'll go through them quickly anyways. The first thing, if we want to meditate on God's Word, this is, we've got to read the thing. Right, let's, let's start there. Let's open up our Bibles and read it. The second way, let's read it with a highlighter or a pen or pencil or a journal in hand. I know in some of the students I worked with at the last church were really like opposed to writing in their Bibles for whatever reason. If you need permission to write in your Bible, let me give you permission to write in your Bibles. Circle stuff, highlight stuff, make little notes. There are journaling Bibles you can get now that either have like an empty page next to a full page, which that's a lot of notes, or you can get like fat columns on the sides. So you can say, okay, God, what are you saying here? Or you can make notes of, I think God's saying, me to, saying this to me from this verse, and we can come back to it. I, again, a simple example, I flipped open to Psalm 1 in my Bible, and there's a note right next to it that says, blessed, like the first word always looks back to the garden and always looks forward to our future hope. And we can remember stuff. We, we meditate on these concepts that are there if we write it down. One pastor I, I listen to and, and read has, has created this thing that he calls the HEAR journal. HEAR, like with your ears, uh, is an acronym. So he says, as you read your scripture, your, your verses for the day or whatever, do four things. Highlight something that stands out. 
explain, write a couple notes on, okay, what does this mean? What is the author talking about here? Apply it. What does that mean for me today? How do I do that? And then R is respond. Kind of give yourself a call to action. In light of this verse that meant this and can be applied this way, I'm going to do this. Right? It's, it's, you can't just sort of passively read and do that. Right? You've got to actually think about these things. Another way, we've we got to memorize the word. Right? You can't, if you're spending time memorizing verses, it's going to be in there. So that when you hit trials and, and hard times in life, you've got God's word in your head, ready to be recalled. Finally, again, there, there could be a thousand other ways to do this. Set an alarm on your phone or your watch to remind you to think about or read a text. Maybe in the morning, if you get up and you read your Bible first thing in the morning, write something out, write a verse out on an index card, put it in your pocket, and then set a timer on your watch to beep every hour. And every hour, you just pull it out and take a look and put it back. It can take 10 seconds to do that during your day. The goal here is not to just grow in head knowledge and know stuff and be able to say, well, I memorized 52 verses this week. You guys should all celebrate me. God's so lucky to have me on his team. But it's so that we wrestle with God's word long enough so that it it catches fire in our hearts and we see the beauty and we delight in it. We're not trying to master the text, but rather let the text master us and lead us and guide us. So, Who is the blessed one in Psalm 1? Ultimately, it's Jesus. Everyone, though, who is a follower of Christ also gets that blessing through him. If we belong to him, then we strive as well to live out the pattern set out by this psalm. We could say, blessed is the one who turns away from sin to find joy in God's word. Which leads us to the second question. How is the godly one blessed? What does it look like? What does the blessing look like? If this is about Jesus, how is Jesus blessed? And the psalmist, again, here gives us this picture of a green, growing blessing. Again, it's, it's a hearkening back to the Garden of Eden and a looking forward. Verse 3. The blessed one is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and leaves that don't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now there's five specific things here that we'll go through really quickly, I promise. First, notice that the tree isn't growing. Right? It doesn't say it's like a tree who grows and happens to be next to a spring, but it's a tree that's been planted. Again, in the original language, this describes something that's been transplanted with the purpose, put there for a reason. We've been placed where we are. This is part of the blessing. that There's a purpose for our lives. God's got something for us. Later in the Psalms, in Psalm 139, verse 16, we read, All of the days ordained for me were written in your book, God, before one of them came to be. There's a, there's a plan. Second, the tree hasn't just been transplanted, but it's been transplanted by streams of water, literally canals, like an irrigation system. So this isn't just, okay, there seems to be a creek here, let's move this plant here so it can survive. But this is, here is a purposeful place of living water that we want our plant to be next to. We are planted next to that life-giving water, and we've heard Jesus talk about that many times, haven't we? Third, the blessing of the tree is that it yields fruit in its season. There, you, will, you will yield fruit. If we delight in the world, if we are rooted, we'll grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Fourth, its leaves don't wither. Because this tree has been transplanted next to a canal, even in the dry heat of summer, which is apparently going to come to Canmore sometime, this plant is still well watered. 
Its roots are deep. It's, it's well fed. And, and then for us as well, as we delight in God's instruction, as we rest in his word, we build our life on his love. As we sang earlier, we put those roots deep down into living water. And when the hard stuff comes, it's hard. It's a disaster. We're rooted in something that doesn't move. We're rooted in God's word. Finally, it says, in all he does, he prospers. Now, some read words like prosper with dollar signs in their eyes. But the word here translated as prosper more appropriately means to, to succeed or to accomplish the work you set out to do. So just going back here, if we said in verse 1 that the truly blessed man is Jesus, he prospered, what did that look like for him? He didn't have a private jet so he could get around the world faster to preach to more people. He was, he was homeless. He was, he was poor his entire life. He was beaten and crucified and killed on a cross. His success, his prospering was ultimately accomplished through his work on the cross. And he succeeded through his suffering and death. One commentator says for us, In God's economy, the work he gives us often prospers through our own suffering and humiliation. The blessing, though, is that this pain and confusion is not pointless. The work God gives us to do in the place He plants us will prosper as we faithfully turn from sin, delight in His Word, and meditate on the Word. The psalmist then shows us the stark contrast of this this godly life versus a life far from God in verse 4. It says, The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. It's another picture, another image for us of the grain being harvested in the fall and brought down into this hard place and kind of mashed around a little bit so that the the seeds, the kernels fall out of the husk. And if you can can then imagine the the farmer with a, a winnowing fork or a shovel kind of shoveling into the pile and throwing it up. And the hard kernels of grain or, or whatever, think popcorn seed is a good picture for me. Again, I'm not a farmer. But those hard seeds, they fall fast back to the ground. And even the slightest breeze blows away the garbage, blows away the chaff. That's the picture we're given here. This is the exact opposite of a tree that's been transplanted near life-giving waters. The chaff has no root. The chaff produces no fruit of itself. It can't find water and it's blown away by the winds. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In our day, it is unpopular to talk about a time when judgment will come, but the Bible tells us that one day, each of us will stand in front of God and give an accounting for our lives. In these verses, we see two drastically different pictures. On the one side, we see blessings of God, and we see promises, and, and we see those who love Him are, are like plants planted in the Garden of Eden. We can look back towards that, we can look forward to it. On the other side of the contrast, we, we see separation from God and emptiness and judgment. Which brings us to our last question. Why is the godly one blessed? Verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The reason for happiness, the reason for flourishing, is that God knows them. At the end of the day, the most important question in life is, does God know me? Do I know him? Do I submit to him? Do I follow him? Or have I rejected his word and his work and just gone off by myself? Some closing thoughts, wrapping up thoughts as we head towards the communion table. Jesus is the true righteous man of Psalm 1. God blessed him and prospered him as our sinless savior. And if if we belong to him, those blessings of Psalm 1 are ours as well through him. 
If we belong to Jesus, Psalm 1 will also be the pattern of our life to to turn from sin and delight in His Word and meditate on the Word. This is the way to true happiness. This is the path to God's blessing. So from this text, what do we learn about how we can pray? I think first, if we're talking about wisdom, literature and wisdom psalms, we should pray for wisdom. We can pray for a renewed hunger for God's word. We can pray that we would delight in God's word. We can thank Jesus for being the blessed one in our place. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning and the opportunity that we have to gather. Thank you that you have gathered us. Thank you that we can learn from this book. I, I, it's amazing to consider the, the millions, probably billions of people who have read and, and meditated on these simple six verses over the years, over the centuries. We thank you that we had the opportunity to do that this morning as well. Jesus, thank you that you are the blessed one here. Thank you that you came and you, you lived the life that we were created to live but couldn't. That you, that you died the death that our unbelief, our sin and rebellion deserved. That you died it in our place. But thank you that you did not stay in the grave. But on the third day you were raised again. And now you're sitting at the right hand of God praying for us. And that your good work can be attributed to us as we submit to you. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And as in a minute we take communion, we thank you, Jesus, that you gathered with your friends. And on that that last meal together, you said, this is my blood shed for you. This is the new covenant, the new way that you will be able to relate to God, that you, Jesus, would now be our final, perfect, true sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, too, that you took the bread and you broke it and said, "This, this bread is my body broken for you. And so as we remember, as we take the elements in just a minute, we remember your work, uh, Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us so that we can find true happiness, that we can be blessed as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.